19 to 34. This is the word of the Lord. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Brother Lars. Please pray with me. Our Father, we just read about the Holy Spirit and we ask for the Holy Spirit to come with power this morning to transform us by the preaching of the word. We pray for new birth We pray for sanctification, all for the glory of Christ, for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. From the ashes, a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. Some of you fellow Tolkien fans may recognize those words from the Fellowship of the Ring. If you're not familiar with the Lord of the Rings, uh, one of the things that makes the story so captivating is the back story. Tolkien sets the context of his fictional fantasy in the rich history of Middle Earth with incredible detail spanning thousands of years. So when the story starts... There had been a long period of silence and only distant memories connect what happened back then to what's happening now. And it adds gravity and depth to the story. Many great stories are like that, whether literature or film. I think of the Pulitzer Prize winning Lonesome Dove or even the original Star Wars. Part of what makes these stories captivating is the rich backstory and history that you slowly discover as details are revealed. As the plot 
unfolds, you discover there had been a period of silence since the last major events had taken place. But then, from the ashes, a fire shall be woken. A new chapter of the story begins and we're captivated. This is what I want us to consider as we encounter John the Baptist. Only unlike fiction and fantasy, this story is true. And the significance of what is happening here cannot be understood or appreciated apart from the rich backstory of God's dealings with his people and his mighty works of old, the history of preparation for the fulfillment of his promises. As Eugene Merrill says, the New Testament presupposes the old at every point, so much so that one could say that the New Testament is largely meaningless apart from its Old Testament orientation. In other words, the Old Testament is the prequel for what we are about to see. It has now been 400 years of silence for God's people with no prophecy, no word from the Lord for centuries, only the promises and stories of long ago. Then John the Baptist comes on the scene as the last prophet of the old world, the final herald for the arrival of Messiah. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, John says. Or as Eugene Peterson paraphrases in the message, I am thunder in the desert. I love Peterson's paraphrase here, and it's double meaning. Because John is indeed thunder in the sense of the loud cry in the wilderness fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, which we will look at later. But he's also thunder in the desert in the sense of signaling the rain that would finally come to the barren desert. Such a strange and unexpected thing to hear thunder in the desert. Such an exciting and long-awaited thing. The sound of rain coming to a barren land with no water. John is signaling the end of the drought of God's word to his people. After 400 years, the famine of prophecy is now ending. God's people were tired. They were oppressed. They were waiting and clinging to their history, stories of old, stories of great warriors and kings and prophets and their promises. But that was so long ago. They thought, and God's silence was deafening. But suddenly, thunder in the desert. God's voice once again is coming to his people. Promises from long ago are about to be fulfilled. There is a light in the darkness. The dawn of the new age is here. From the ashes, the fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Our outline is very simple this morning. We want to first consider further who John is, John the Baptist, and second, who Jesus is. And my prayer for each of us this morning is that we would feel something of the significance, historically certainly, but also the significance personally, the significance of this thunder in the desert. So number one in your outline, and you have an outline in your bulletin of today's message, who is John? The Baptist. This 
John, the, the, the fact that John is a key figure in redemptive history is demonstrated by the fact that all four Gospels give considerable attention to his ministry and his message. He was very popular, many followers. In fact, amazingly, John's disciples still exist years later. If you remember when we went through Acts, when the Apostle Paul goes to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, he asks these people if they've received the Holy Spirit. In other words, are they Christians? And they say, we don't even know about this. We were baptized by John. So while we may be tempted to skip over John and get to Jesus, we need to understand that John was fundamental to God's redemption program, and he had quite a following of his own. Now, so far in the gospel, the first two weeks of our series, we've been looking at the prologue or the introduction to this book. Our passage this morning marks the beginning of the story, the beginning of the narrative. We start seeing other people speaking besides the narrator. And the events we'll look at today in this passage take place over two days. Let's look at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. This is John the Baptist, not John the author of the gospel. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So first, we need to understand who these Jews are and why are they asking about John's identity? Well, we see later in verse 22 that these Jews say, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So these Jews were sent and the way they speak indicates they were sent in some kind of official capacity. They were an official delegation, most likely from the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body of the Jews. So they wanted an official opinion about John. These men were sent by the religious authorities, those in charge of the Jewish religion, you might say, because they wanted to know who John was. Now, why? Why did they want to know about him? Well, letter A, he was baptizing people, which is why he's called the Baptist, or the Baptist, as someone said this morning. Verse 25, they asked him, why are you baptizing? John was dunking people in the Jordan River, which was not a new thing per se. It's important to understand this. When Gentiles converted to Judaism, they would go through a cleansing rite, a ceremonial washing called proselyte baptism. So that kind of thing was not new. What was new And what was different about what John was doing is John was baptizing Jews. John was telling his fellow Jews, the Messiah is about to arrive and you're not ready. Even you Jews, you people of Israel, you descendants of the patriarchs, you're not ready. You are unclean. You need to submit to this baptism. Now this was so radical that the Jewish authorities want to understand, who are you, John? And the manner of their questions are really getting to their overall question of authority. Where does your authority to do this come from, John? Who do you think you are, John, to command Jews to go through this cleansing rite? This is only for Gentiles, those outside the covenant. Now, as I mentioned, there had been 400 years of silence in terms of hearing from God through a prophet. And the expectation 
The messianic expectation was at a fever pitch. There was a lot of speculation about the events surrounding the day of the Lord and the the coming of Messiah, depending on your view of of the passages in, in their Hebrew Bible. And there are a number of key figures, key people, who are relevant to this monumental event of Messiah's coming in the day of the Lord. And because of the radical nature of what John was doing and how he was speaking, they thought he must be one of these major promised figures from the Old Testament. So the first question is whether John's the Messiah himself. In verse 20, he makes, John makes it clear he's not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. They ask him, who are you? Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, really emphatic there, confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, the Messiah or the Christ, uh, of course, is the promised one. This is the greater son of David that was promised to the king in 2 Samuel, his descendant who would reign forever. John makes it very clear he's not that person. He knows their hopes were high, and he makes certain they don't misunderstand. I'm not him. But again, there were other figures associated with the coming of Messiah, like, letter C in your outline, Elijah. Verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Now, the last verses of our Old Testament, the last of the prophets, Malachi chapter 4, we read this. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So, after this period of silence, the next thing that might happen would be Elijah. So, it's not surprising that John is asked if he is Elijah. And he says, no, I'm not. Now, this is interesting because Jesus says elsewhere, he at least indicates that John was this Elijah figure. In Matthew 11, for instance, Jesus says to those listening, if you are willing to receive it, John is the Elijah that was to come. Now, Jesus is clearly referring to this Elijah referenced in Malachi. But the actual Elijah never died. If you remember, he was taken up in a chariot of fire and never actually experienced physical death. So it's possible that John is just denying that he's literally Elijah. He's not Elijah reincarnated. But as Jesus said, for those who who are willing to receive it, John fulfills this prophecy. John is marked by his resemblance to Elijah, both in what he wore and his lifestyle. It's also possible that John had lower expectations for his own significance than Jesus did. Either way, he says, no, I'm not Elijah. Letter D, what about the prophet? Verse 21, they asked him, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, they didn't ask him if he was a prophet. They asked him if he was the prophet. This harkens back to Deuteronomy 18. This is the prophet like unto Moses. Moses spoke of a future prophet who would be like himself in the sense of being a mediator between God and man. Now, in the rest of the New Testament, we learn that Jesus fulfills this prophecy. Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses. But the Jews in this day 
did not necessarily connect this figure, the prophet, to the Messiah. To them, the prophet was a separate person with his own significance. So in these future events as part of God's program. And so they asked John if he's the prophet. And again, he answers no. Well, the Jews press further. John, you are doing and saying some pretty radical stuff. If you're not the Messiah, and you're not Elijah, and you're not the prophet, then who are you? Well, he says, letter E, Verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. The Jews asked him about figures identified in Malachi and Deuteronomy, but John takes them to Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 40. Now, one of the most important themes in Isaiah's prophecy is the theme of Exodus, I wish I could spend more time on this, but it's a, it's a rich theme that exceeds the significance of the original exodus from Egypt and also the exodus from Babylon and the return from exile. The deepest meaning of exodus is restoration to relationship with God, a returning to the presence of God because the worst bondage, the bondage we need to be freed from the bondage the Israelites needed to be freed from is not the Egyptians or the Babylonians or any political power. It is bondage to sin. The exodus we need most is not freedom from political powers, but freedom from sin. And like each exodus in the biblical history, God's intervention is needed to make that happen. So the new exodus that Isaiah ultimately points to is God's deliverance from sin, and John picks up on this theme. It's interesting that John is baptizing people in the Jordan, okay, the very river cross to enter the promised land after the Exodus. John is preparing people for a new Exodus. Isaiah declared in his prophecy that before Messiah would come, he would send a messenger that would proclaim, Make straight the way of the Lord. Now this harkens to a a road building illustration in the ancient world. When roads were built uh, in ancient times, especially through the wilderness, they would need to clear away obstacles first to prepare the way. I grew up on a farm and we were blessed to have a go-kart and and four-wheelers over the years. Amazing we weren't killed. But when we would make new trails through the grove, The first thing we would do is get all the fallen logs and sticks out of the way, cut the bushes back, rake things clear so you could make a path. This is the idea, clearing away obstacles for the Lord. The messenger promised in Isaiah then would be a transitional figure, a preparatory figure, one who bridges the old age to the new age, a voice preparing the way for the Lord. This is who John the Baptist is. He's the one who prepares people for Jesus. Now, how does he prepare them? Well, first he prepares them by calling for repentance. He makes it clear that sin is the problem. People need to acknowledge and turn from sin. That's what John's baptism does, getting ready for God's solution to that problem of sin. And further, he's announcing that solution is right around the corner. 
So he's also preparing them by heralding God's salvation. And one thing that's instructive here, I think, about John is his humility. Look at verse 26. Among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Now here's where some knowledge about first century culture is helpful to understand what John is saying. In those days, if you were someone's disciple, you would be expected to serve your master in many ways, but there was a difference between a disciple and a slave. A slave would be required to untie their master's sandals, but a disciple was not required to do that. Only slaves would be expected to do that. So John, consider this. He first makes it clear he's not the Christ, but if you were a disciple of Christ, he'd still be exempt from the lowliest task of untying his sandal. Now he makes it clear, I'm not even worthy to be called his disciple. Furthermore, I'm not even worthy to be called his slave. John's saying, I'm not even worthy to do for this man what a lowly slave would do. This is a strong statement about how great John considered Jesus to be. Ultimately, what he's saying to the Jews is this. Hey, you're asking questions about me. You should be asking about him. Don't look at me. Look to him. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. That's how great he is. Now, John was a biological half-cousin of Jesus, yet even he didn't know the magnitude of who Jesus was until God revealed it to him. He says in verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Even John didn't know Jesus' full identity apart from divine revelation. And now he wants to reveal Jesus to Israel. Just note, as it affords the opportunity, this is our mission statement at Orchard. We want to reveal Jesus in everything we do. And John is about to tell us who Jesus is. And this is number two in your outline. First, letter A, he's God's sacrifice for the sin of any believer without distinction. Verse 29, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, behold draws attention to what follows. It's a strong emphasis for what he's going to describe. This is the lamb of God. Now, We are so used to this phrase that we miss how strange this would have sounded to John's audience. It's familiar to us now, but the Lamb of God was by no means an obvious title for the Messiah then. Now, there are a number of possible references to this idea of a lamb. First, there was the idea of the Passover lamb the annual celebration and reminder of the exodus out of Egyptian slavery. Second, there are the daily sacrifices in the temple, the guilt offering, the sin offering. Third, there is the suffering servant theme in Isaiah, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Fourth, there is the triumphant lamb, a, a, a victorious warrior lamb that was more 
uh, prominent in the Jewish literature circulating at this time. Also, uh, the author John picks up on that theme in Revelation, the, the, the victorious lamb. Finally, there's a reference in Genesis 22, the story of Abraham on his way to be tested by God, ostensibly giving up his one and only son, Isaac. And Abraham says to Isaac, God will himself provide a lamb. Okay, God's lamb. I think Leon Morris is correct that what the author of the Gospel of John wants us to see in this Lamb of God theme is a composite of these various pictures. There are threads of each of these references foundational to what Jesus will do. He takes away sin and guilt by his sacrifice. He bears the sin so that its guilt can be removed like like the suffering servant. His sacrifice leads to the exodus, like the Passover lamb, this greater exodus from the bondage of sin we talked about. Ultimately, he is the victorious lamb of Revelation 5, and he is God's lamb, the one that God himself provides. And since he is God's lamb, he will remove sin permanently. It's not like the old sacrificial System where sin is overlooked basically till the next time. God's lamb is a substitute that removes sin forever. As the author of Hebrews says, and every high priest, I'm sorry, every priest stands daily at, at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's finished. So the author, John, writing well after the cross and resurrection, with knowledge of maybe many of the letters of the New Testament even, has a much broader picture and understanding of this phrase, the Lamb of God. And its full meaning is what we see fleshed out in the rest of the New Testament. Now, John the Baptist, who is actually speaking this phrase in the story, likely had very little understanding at this point. One reason I say that is in Matthew's gospel, we learn that John is eventually put in prison, and he has doubts about Jesus. He sends word to Jesus to ask if he really is the Messiah, because he had different expectations. It seems that a suffering Messiah was not something he was fully prepared for. But here, remember, John is functioning as a prophet of the Lord, a mouthpiece for God. Just like the prophets of the Old Testament, he's speaking better than he knows. Remember in our First Peter series, chapter 1, we're told that the Old Testament prophets searched intently, inquiring details about the things they were prophesying. Okay, they only had part of the picture. They were eager to see how these things would play out and who would be the Messiah, things like that. They did not comprehend the fullness of what they were saying. It's likely the same with John the Baptist, who's sort of the last of the, of the prophets of the old age. He's speaking truths here that have much more significance than even he himself fully understands. Now, before we move on from this one, I don't miss something highly significant at the end of this description. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? The scope of what Jesus is going to do on the cross 
is the world. Right at the beginning of his gospel, John the author points forward to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus will take away the sin of anyone who believes. The scope of the atonement is not just for Israel. It's for the whole world. It's extended beyond Israel to anyone who will receive him. So Jesus is God's sacrifice for the sin of any believer without distinction. That's good news. Second, letter B, Jesus is the preexistent and preeminent one. Verse 30, John says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now in the prologue of chapter one, we learn that Jesus is the eternal word, the word that was with God and the word that was God. There's both equality and distinction within the Godhead and the Trinity. And this eternal word, the eternal son, was made flesh and dwelt among us. So even though John was older than the man Jesus biologically and started his ministry before that of Jesus, John proclaims that Jesus was before him because the eternal son is preexistent. And he's preeminent, which means he has first place in everything. John proclaims that about Jesus. Again, John is saying, don't look at me. Look to him. His main job is pointing people to Jesus and getting people ready for Jesus. One more thing I'll mention on this verse. Notice John says, after me comes a man. Okay, of all four gospels, the one that most emphasizes Jesus' deity by far is John. But notice here, John never loses sight of his humanity. Jesus is the eternal word, to be sure, but he's the word become flesh. It is essential to the gospel. It is essential to our salvation that Jesus is truly a man. Letter C. Jesus is the bearer and dispenser of the Holy Spirit. Verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw this. This is talking about his experience at Jesus' baptism. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Okay, in the Old Testament, the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, descended on certain people for a season. Whether it was to fulfill some task, you think of Samson, Saul, to, to perform some kind of ministry. They would enjoy the Spirit's presence and power while God sovereignly chose to be on them. But then the Spirit would be lifted and leave the person when the season was over. But the prophecies about the Messiah were different. In Isaiah 11, we read, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is a distinctive promise about the Messiah. And this is what happened with Jesus at his baptism. The spirit descended on him and remained on him. He's the permanent bearer of the Holy Spirit. In Luke's gospel, when Jesus comes into the synagogue at in Nazareth and reads the scroll. This is one of the passages he read. 
And afterward, he sat down and says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, yeah, Isaiah was talking about me. But not only was Jesus the bearer of the Holy Spirit, not only, did the, not only did the Spirit remain on him permanently, he was also the dispenser of the Holy Spirit. As John says, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Just means immersion. Just like John immersed people into the water, Jesus will immerse people in the Holy Spirit. This directly relates to other prophecies about the new covenant, the new age that would come. A distinct sign of this promised new era is when God's people would have the Spirit poured out on all of them, not just certain people. Here's a sampling from the prophets of old. Isaiah 32. Until the Spirit is poured out on us from on high. Isaiah 44, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Joel 2, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour my spirit on all flesh. So in this verse, John's doing two things. He's announcing who Jesus is. And second, by virtue of his arrival, he's announcing the new age of the Holy Spirit is dawning. It's upon us. Letter D. Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 34. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is what you might say is the climax of John the Baptist's testimony. This is the Son of God. Now, this title, Son of God, has a rich history throughout the storyline in the Bible. It starts with Adam, who's called the Son of God, the chosen one on earth to have dominion as God's representative. Then later, God chose the nation of Israel, Jacob's descendants. Israel is called the Son of God. Again, they were to be his representatives on earth. Then from within Israel, from the tribe of Judah, King David was promised a future descendant who would have everlasting dominion. This descendant is called the Son of God. So here, the, here's the fulfillment of that promise, Jesus himself. Now for the author John, however, in this gospel, this title seems to take on additional meaning in John. The Son of God shows the uniqueness of Jesus' relationship with the Father. We we think again maybe of Genesis uh, 22. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Jesus is that one and only son of God whom God loved, which unlike Abraham's son actually will be sacrificed. Now here again, we don't know how much of this John the Baptist understood, but certainly the author, evangelist John, wants us to see the fuller picture here. The Son of God also denotes his special relationship with the Father and indicates the deity of Jesus himself. Now with the remainder of our time, I just want to step back for a minute and consider the big picture here. 
This is what thousands of years of Old Testament prophecy and history have been pointing to. This is the fulfillment of the hopes and promises of Israel. This is the unique eternal word made flesh coming to rescue not just Israel, but the world from its bondage to sin and the righteous judgment of God. This is big news, my friends. Nothing going on in your life, nothing going on in my life, nothing going on in the news, nothing in world history is more important than this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the biggest problem we have, the exodus we most need, uh, bondage taken away from the sin of the world. Let's just consider this in a couple of different ways. First, for my brothers and sisters here at Orchard, in terms of our evangelism, it is clear in our text today that John the Baptist's purpose was to prepare the way for Jesus and to point people to Jesus. This is evangelism in essence, right? First, like John the Baptist, we can help prepare the way for Jesus. We can clear away obstacles from people coming to Jesus and seeing him clearly. Clearing obstacles starts with building relationships with unbelievers, showing them love and care, helping to dispel stereotypes they might have about evangelicals or Christians or Jesus freaks, being a true friend, loving them in practical ways. Then as any loving friend would, show them and share with them how much Jesus means to you. And ask them questions about their worldview. Take an interest in what they think about reality. In our first Peter series in chapter 3, we looked at how we can be ready to explain our hope in Jesus. Again, you have to build relationships before these questions would come. That's obvious. But verse 15 of chapter 3, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it, Peter says, with gentleness and respect. About a year ago, Nate Ayers taught a class on evangelistic dialogue, and I encourage you to listen to the audio that's on our website. Just asking questions and uh, getting people to think about reality, it can be very effective to clear the obstacles that might be in the way of people even considering that the gospel of Jesus is true. Many people are uncritically drinking the Kool-Aid of the culture. They can be so misinformed about who Jesus even is or what Christians believe. And they can be often blinded to the inconsistencies in their own view of reality. So just ask questions. Finally, often the last obstacle we need to remove by the Spirit's power, of course, is the same one John sought to remove, and that is Understanding the holiness of God, the reality of sin, and the need for repentance. I believe the most misunderstood aspect of God's nature in our culture today by far is his holiness and how incompatible and offensive our sin is to him and how estranged we are by default as a, a result of sin and how inherent is the rebellion in the fallen human heart. With gentleness and respect, our friends need to know this truth. 
and the judgment that's coming. The second way we can be like John the Baptist is by pointing people to Jesus. John says, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. Look, don't look at me. Look to him. Behold the Lamb of God. Kent Hughes tells a story about the great conductor Arturo Toscanini who conducted Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It was an amazing performance. The audience went wild. They were clapping, stomping their feet, whistling. Everyone's just caught up in how magnificent the performance was. And as Toscanini stood there, he bowed several times and then he acknowledged his orchestra. But when the ovation started to subside, he turned intently to his musicians. And he was almost out of control as he whispered, gentlemen, gentlemen. And the orchestra leaned forward to listen. And he whispered, gentlemen, I am nothing. Now, apparently this was a shocker because he had an enormous ego. (laughs) But then he added, gentlemen, you are nothing. But Beethoven, he said, Beethoven is everything, everything, everything. John the Baptist says, I am nothing. Jesus is everything. Don't look at me. Look to him. And if we're to point people to Jesus, this is the humble attitude we need to have as well because it's true. We are nothing. But Jesus is everything. 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 Finally, I want to ask you personally, have you truly beheld the Lamb of God? Do you know this Son of God, this preeminent Savior? Look, if he's just a man, then... His death on the cross is sad. Perhaps he's a good example, but that's all. But he's more than a man, much more. He's the eternal one, God's sacrificial lamb. And because of that, he's able to take away sin for anyone who will believe, anyone in the world who will trust him for forgiveness and salvation will have eternal life. You know, this is John's goal by writing this entire gospel. And it's my goal this morning. John says near the end of his book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. That's why I'm writing this, that you may believe and have life. Do you have that life this morning? As John the Baptist announced, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Consider when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. God provided skins to cover them, remember? Sacrificial death for covering. Then later at the Passover, before the Exodus, each household had a lamb whose blood covered the doorway to save them from the angel of death. Then as the priesthood was established, each year on the Day of Atonement, there was a sacrifice offered for the nation of Israel. As H.B. Charles points out, consider this progression. First in the garden, there was one lamb per person. Then later at the Passover, one lamb per family. Then later, one lamb for the entire nation. Now we have the lamb of God who covers the sins, not of one person, not just of one family, not just of one nation, but a lamb for the whole world. This is good news. This lamb is offered as a substitute. To anyone in the world without distinction. You can take that literally. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. 
Slave, free, male, female, Iraqi, Cambodian, Norwegian, Irish, Republican, Democrat, Socialist, Capitalist, those who've been divorced, those who've committed sexual sin, those who've had an abortion, those who've ruined relationships because of their anger, those who struggle with same-sex attraction or their gender identity, those who struggle with addiction, none of these things define you, my friend. What defines you is this. You were created in the image of God, and you're incredibly valuable to him. And like all of us, that image of God has been marred by sin, and we've all been affected differently, but we've all been affected. And we all need that sin taken away so that we can have life and adopt it into God's family. That's why this news is so good this morning. I don't care who you are or what you've done. Behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb is for the whole world. The Lamb of God is for you. This news is thunder in the desert. He's the only hope in this broken, barren world. And whether you realize it or not, He's exactly what you've been waiting for. Last week we read in verse 12 of chapter 1, to those who receive him, who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Will you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this morning? Will will you receive the sacrifice of this Lamb of God for your sins and become a child of God? Have your sins taken away? As William Cooper wrote so beautifully, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Behold Emmanuel. Behold the word become flesh. Behold Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Would you please stand with me as we close this morning? Our Father, we worship and adore the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. It's so humbling what you've done. Lord, I pray our hearts and minds would be recalibrated to that truth this morning. I pray for those here outside that forgiveness outside the family, may they humbly bow before you, acknowledge their sin, and receive eternal forgiveness and life with you forever. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.